This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Iman Publishing, publisher of Canada's leading law school casebooks, wants you to know that you can purchase all of its titles directly from Iman using Iman.ca. We know students are concerned about the rising costs of their education, including the costs of casebooks and materials. By purchasing directly from Iman, you can get the newest editions of all of our titles at close to the price of used copies from your bookstore. Through Iman.ca, you also get the advantage of lower costs, no lineups, and quick direct shipping. Also, by joining Iman Plus, you get free shipping within Canada, 15% off all pre-publication titles, members-only flash sales, and other incentives. Get the leading case books for the best prices at Iman.ca. For a limited time, get 10% off the purchase of any law school casebook by entering the code LAWSCHOOL10. That's Law School 10 in the promo code box. Welcome to the Law School Show. My name is Noor and I will be your host for today's episode. Today we have with us David Morneau, a collaborative family lawyer working at Mustin Law, passionate about baseball, the husband of a loving wife, and father of two amazing children and two adorable cats. For over 20 years, David has practiced law with empathy, compassion, and integrity, helping families through challenging circumstances with considerable care. He applies innovation and creativity in assisting clients in determining what they need to overcome the obstacles they are facing, empowering them to do so with dignity, honor, and a focus on the future and communication, ensuring that they have all the information and advice to make informed decisions. David has been formally trained as both a family mediator and a collaborative legal professional, is accredited as both, and was one of the first in the province to receive recognition as an advanced collaborative professional. His skill and experience allow him to handle all family law-related matters. In the past, he has served as counsel for Family and Children's, Children's Services of Waterloo Region, the Family Responsibility Office, and the Office of the Children's Lawyer, where he was also a part of a specialized anti-human trafficking team servicing at-risk youth. Throughout his career, David has observed and analyzed our legal systems and has spoken widely about reform and change. His representation of parents and children in the family justice system allowed him to witness firsthand the impact that adversarial processes can have on families in transition. Thank you so much for being here with us today, David. Thank you very much for having me, Noor. So I just wanted to go over how I met Dave. I met Dave in the summer of 2015, where I did a summer internship at his family law firm at the time. And he taught me so much about family beyond the legal realm. My internship with him was essentially what confirmed my decision of wanting to become a lawyer. And eventually he became a great mentor and a great friend. And it has been seven years since. So thank you for that, Dave. <laughs> well, you're welcome. But I, I seem to recall that we met each other at an event put on by the Law uh, Association of 
uh, at Wilfrid Laurier. Oh, yes, you are correct. And, and you, being the, the bold young lady that you are, came up to me and struck up a conversation. And that's <laughs> what I remember of how we met because you left an impression on me, a very indelible impression on Thank me. Thank you. And, you know, it's funny you say that because you were one of the only lawyers at that event um, that I spoke with. And we talked about various, you know, just parts of my life, diversity, culture, travel. And I really, I appreciated the fact that, you know, we weren't talking about just work and like the law. And that's when I said, hey, you know, I aspire to be like him one day. <laughs> well, no, I, and, and I'm, you have no idea how not just flattered, but honored I am of that. And, and nor just so you know, I had never taken on a student before. I mean, I was always way too busy. And uh, there was something in you that I recognized, and I know other people will recognize too, in terms of um, not just how you approached me, but also how easy the conversation was at that point, and how it's always been between us. So Thank never you forget so that. Much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Dave. You're welcome. So uh, moving on to the episode that we are recording today, I want to discuss, and this is something we've gone over a lot over the past years while I was working with you and just, you know, as we were keeping in touch, the voice of children, or perhaps we can say the voicelessness of children. Um, it's definitely an underrated topic in law. And a lot of the times, you know, children, they feel seen, but not heard. And in some instances, they feel neither seen nor heard. And, you know, they're, they are unable to articulate or even verbalize the the events that they experience. And I know that family law revolves around the best interests of the child, according to or pursuant to the Divorce Act, uh, Section 16, Subsection 1, the court shall take into consideration only the best interests of the, ch of the child of the marriage in making a parenting order or a contact order. And I have observed this oftentimes adults forget about the child and they become embroiled in adversarial fights and it just gets very messy. I also remember we wrote an article about this in 2015. So Dave, I just wanted to explore a few questions um, such as, you know, the law pr prioritizes children, but in application, how can we give these children a voice? What are some tips on dealing with children in a family case? How does parental alienation affect the children involved? And you practice collaborative family law. So if you could tell me more about this and how it can make the process easier for children. Well, that's uh, that's quite a bit to cover for us, I guess. We should, we should dive, dive into this, Noor, shouldn't we? For sure. <laughs> so the best interest of the child is, a, is an interesting concept because you have within the law, within both the Divorce Act and uh, the provincial legislation, the Family Law, or sorry, the Children's Law Reform Act, you have this identification of what the factors are in determining what's in the best interest of the child. And you have their needs and, and their relationships and things like that. But one of the very specific factors is a child's views and preferences, giving weight to their age and maturity unless those views can't be reasonably ascertained. So we do have a mechanism within the law that encourages that um, those views be brought forward. Unfortunately, 
at least in my, uh, my experience, we also have a system that's set up as an adversarial one and it's polarized. So children do have views and preferences, but how those views and preferences are formed um, come from many, many different factors. So, I mean, I enjoyed for 15 years, I represented these kids in court, both in child protection proceedings and in uh, uh, custody and access proceedings. And I rarely found it challenging to sit down and talk to kids and build a comfortable environment where the kids felt comfortable talking to me about what was going on in their world. Um, there are two different ways that, for example, in Ontario through the office of the children's lawyer, um, that the views can come forward. One is a clinical investigator does an investigation and provides a report. Uh, the other way was the way that I did it uh, as counsel. So I sat at a table with the other counsel. Um, I was giving submissions on the children's behalf. That said, you often had situations where um, the kids, uh, you know, what I always loved about the kids' views and preferences were they were pure, very often pure and innocent, and they simply wanted to be loved by both parents. Right. They, I very often heard, I just want them to stop fighting. Why can't they see what they're doing? And you know what? I was successful in a lot of cases, bringing their views back to the table and having the parents uh, make decisions, taking that into account and really listening to what the kids had to say. Mm -hmm. Then there were the other situations where, you know, if the kids were saying certain things, the parents would say that they were, you know, it was never, they were influenced by, it was, they were manipulated by the other parents. Um, they were, uh, or you coached them into saying certain things. I had heard that from a few parents. You, you know, we have a system, we talk about the best interests and parents were always very adept at telling me best interests of the child, but the best interests of the child had to align with what their view of the other parent was and what the outcome should be. Um, so it's, you know, it, it, it became a weapon. You know, the best interests uh, became a weapon. The other thing I would see often is the parents, you know, you would have parents that would, yep, whatever the kid wants, um, I'm prepared to abide by. And then I, I, I would come back to them and say, well, you know, they'd like to have a relationship with the other parent. And again, that's where the accusations came up. But but it's it's more than that. I mean, there's a lot of nuance in it. You know, I think we're, our systems are evolving too to recognize um, conjugal violence, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, coercive control, and the interplay there. And, and we can talk about that uh, a little later. But you know, the the voices. You know, sometimes it seemed arbitrary to me. You know, some you may have one judge that says. Well, if that's what the child says, then there's nothing I can do. You know, I right. remember having 
a case one time where I represented a child and it was very clear to me that the child had been manipulated and, and influenced very heavily by one of the parents. He was very open with me at one meeting and then some of that information was disclosed uh, with his consent and then and then he was very closed off to me and and to a point where i remember having to bring a motion and this is very rare that you would see this but i brought a motion to be removed from the record because i felt that i served no useful purpose Mm -hmm. And, and you know i was disappointed in that particular case because the judge even though i had laid it out uh my concerns i think the child was i want to say 11 or 12 and you know the response i got was well you know mr morno i can't make them do that which they don't want to do so there's this juxtaposition within the court you know on the one hand um either too much power Mm -hmm. or um not recognizing that although the views maybe articulated a certain way that the actions and, and everything else that has gone on uh, may speak to something different. Uh, and those are rare. In fact, that's the only case that I can think of where that happened. So that's probably the extreme case. Uh, and then the other cases where it, if it didn't fit within a certain theory that the, the children's views could also be I don't want to say ignored, but um, minimized would would certainly be a word uh, that I would use there. Absolutely. And, you know, I've witnessed you advocating on behalf of children. You know, we, we went we went for mediations. We went to court. And the way I saw you approach a child was just understanding that this child has sort of a limited amount of knowledge or, you know, they're unable to articulate or verbalize what they're feeling. So you kind of have to you have to be their friend and understand and foster, essentially foster a safe environment for them to be comfortable. And unfortunately, in cases of parental alienation or, you know, where a child is being neglected or a parent is trying to unfortunately manipulate the child into thinking a certain way or doing a certain thing, you know, it becomes very difficult for them. As I said, they're voiceless, right? And sometimes they're, they're, they, feel, they feel as if they're not heard. I, and, you know, it's, it's, I, I thank you for sharing your observations. And when I reflect on that, one thing popped into my head. I got so much more from kids. I, you know what, it, it was, I wasn't just happy to represent kids. It, for me, it was an honor to, you know, to be witness to these, you know, young beings, um, not knowing what's going on. And you know what? I got more, I got more from those kids sitting on the right. floor. Uh, forget, you know, I, I, you might remember, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be dressing up in suits and, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be, when I was meeting with yeah. kids, I'd be in jeans and I'd be on their yes. level. And, and I, I'd sit side by side with a, with a kid who maybe didn't want to talk and I'd be coloring with yeah. them and all of a sudden they start, sharing certain things and it's you know the the honor that I had in being able to represent those kids and bring their voices forward unfortunately it's our system is set up as a zero-sum game 
uh, a lot of times. It's not, there's so much that can be done within the system itself, in my view, to improve it by providing support outside of just lawyers. Absolutely. Uh, by providing, you know, it, for example, in domestic violence situations or intimate partner violence, what if the court had professionals? And those, when I say professionals, I'm not just talking about professionals that um, assist the victim. I mean, the reality is there's an offender there, or a perpetrator, uh, who, for whatever reason, and oftentimes it comes from their own upbringing, uh, but not always, uh, they, they have resorted to that kind of behavior and they're actively participating in that kind of behavior. So, you know, what if we stopped making it a win-loss situation mm -hmm. and, and tried to make it more holistic? And see, this is why, you know, I, one of the primary reasons that I stepped away from an adversarial system is because it is, it was polarizing. I, the, the 15 years that I practiced uh, in that adversarial system aged me considerably. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I chose a path about a half dozen years ago, uh, six, seven years ago to focus on building an environment where people are empowered to speak, where children's voices can be heard. And it's not, there's nobody adjudicating. Mm -hmm. So there's no, this isn't about winning. You, you, you reset, you redefine how things uh, are prioritized right from the start. And that priority isn't about winning because no matter what we do, and you know what, I've been in front of a lot of good judges that say, listen, guys, you know what, this isn't about winning. You, you need to think about your kids, but the system itself is still set up as a win-loss situation. I mean, and I don't know that there's a lot that we can do to avoid mm -hmm. that unless we completely uh, approach the, the whole situation, redefining it and, and doing it completely differently. I, I'd love that. You may see me back in court if, if that care was given to providing the right professionals within a system that focuses on getting people, getting these families through mm -hmm. this transition, as opposed to, well, we couldn't figure it out ourselves. So we're going to turn, turn to you, a uh, third party judge who doesn't know us from a hole in the ground to make a decision about um, who's right and who's wrong and making an order that impacts our kids for potentially 18 years. Absolutely, Dave. I really liked what you said there about, you know, the, the system being adversarial. We cannot take that energy and deal with children in the same manner because essentially, you know, putting up sort of a superior front or, you know, I'm older than you, I know more than you, that's not going to help the case. And just as you said, sitting with them, you know, you and I, I've seen you doing this as well. You know, you sit down with them, you have a conversation and they slowly start to open up and then you realize that what they're telling you is not what they were telling other people. And why why is that? Because you again fostered a safe environment for them. 
And I don't see that very often, right? So the children essentially just get caught up in this nasty fight and it affects them so much and they grow up in that environment and it affects their, 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 you know, their teenage years, their adulthood. So it's just like a vicious cycle. And I, I do believe that you mentioned there should be different ways to support these children. And I'm aware that you are a collaborative family lawyer. So in terms of that, how how do you believe um, a collaborative process or in other words, a holistic approach would help children or, you know, make the, the whichever conflicts you're able to m- create um, or make more amicable, if you could tell me more about well, that. I, well, first of all, I, I mean, I'm, I'll take a step back into that adversarial system and it wouldn't, it wasn't inconceivable for kids to say to their parents two different things. If they thought that, um, you know, mom or dad was going to be hurt by saying that they wanted to see the other parent, because what these kids are observing in either or both of their parents is that hurt, that pain. And so sometimes how the kids would cope is by telling either saying negative things about the other parent or that they didn't want to see them. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you know, hearing from the other parent that, oh, well, you know, when they came to see me, uh, they didn't want to leave. And so that duality that would be created often caused parents to say, well, it can't be both. Right. And, and the reality is it can, it absolutely can, because you have these fragile little minds mm-hmm. that are trying to navigate an uncertain situation, don't know Uh, You know, sometimes these kids heard from their friends or they saw firsthand from their friends uh, what happened. And, you know, they talk and they talk at young ages. You you know, oftentimes I would talk to kids about um, whether they knew of anybody that had been through it. And invariably, they answered in in the affirmative that they did. They knew somebody. I mean, in a collaborative process or in any kind of consensual dispute resolution process, or I think as the law now defines a family dispute resolution, the focus is different. Right from the outset, this isn't about winning or losing. There's nobody adjudicating on a case. So there's nobody to impress with information. And being trained the way that I have and, and I think my representation of people is augmented by the fact that I used to uh, represent kids in court. So I saw and I heard what they had to say and I, I saw the damage that could mm-hmm. be done. And you then have a process where you're taking out that element or that, that idea of winning and losing and you're deflating the balloon and you're starting from a different perspective and that the, you know, the idea that you can articulate what's bothering you and you can talk about things that are going on. It allows me to augment what I do by adding those professionals. Um, you know, I can conceive of situations where there has been, uh, an element of, uh, you know, a conjugal violence or domestic violence, intimate partner violence or control, the course of control. 
I can conceive of bringing in somebody who can assist with that and can assist both people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just, it, what it does is it breeds something that is uh, more holistic. I love that word holistic. It's something that what my, it's, it's funny because my project in law school and you and I have talked about law school. And one of the things that still disappoints me is that law school still seems to be focused on preparing young people for the adversarial system that's to come and Absolutely. case law and presenting as opposed to where, where are the skills developed in active listening mm-hmm. and how to broaden and deepen your knowledge of a situation by asking people questions, by empowering those people to make decisions Absolutely. by, um, by, you know, I mean, think about law school. If there was conflict resolution as a course rather than contracts, mm-hmm. or maybe in addition to contracts, not to prioritize one over the other, mm-hmm. but there are certain skills that I think law schools can be teaching uh, students, especially if you're going to embark in family law um, or any law for that matter. Quite frankly, I can say that unequivocally, you know, I say that now with the 20 plus years experience I've had and me having to fumble through it. But when I was in law school, I took mediation. It was a weekend course with Dr. Julie McFarland. And I saw I saw Julie a couple of years ago at an event. And I remember saying to her, you know what? You were what I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing what you did, because that seed was planted. Law school still took me in the direction. I still litigated for 15 years, but that seed was always there. And even in my third year, there was a professor at the University of Windsor named Rose Voivodek, uh, who's no longer with us. And the impression that she left me with, she taught me clinical advocacy. And I remember I had to do a major presentation there. And I did a presentation on holistic law before it was really even a Mm. thing. I was talking about what if we could empower people by surrounding them with different professionals that can help them through the different things. And especially in family law, you know, where the emotions run so high, we have so many opportunities to make this a better system. We have so many opportunities to make the, the judicial system. I'll stop referring to it now as, adversarial system, the judicial system, uh, a better system by, we just need to recognize that, um, there, there are other people, other areas of expertise that are necessary to help people through it and park our egos as the lawyer. One of the best things in collaborative is that I don't need to have all the answers. You know why? Because I have other people that I can bring in. If I want to bring in a child's voice, into uh, a dispute resolution process, I can do that. You know, I can, there is somebody that can, can assist with that. And it doesn't, you know, gone for me are the days where the lawyer has to be the one person that can answer every question and, and handle every uh, problem that arises. And there's delegation and there's, people with the expertise of skills in their 
uh, tool belt to be able to help people, you know, right. in particular, I think about emotional things, but I also use people for financial things too. Mm-hmm. I can't answer all the questions. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to um, law school, you're, you're absolutely correct where we do need a lot more courses that teach us, you know, active listening skills or, you know, using a client-centered sort of focus or approach. But one good thing that I do just I'll pull a plug for the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law. Um, there is a course called Family Dispute Resolution and a great professor, Lynn Rockman, teaches it. I had her last semester. So I am seeing some steps um, in the right direction, but I'm hoping to see in the future for law schools to have a lot more courses teaching us sort of using a holistic approach rather than just the adversarial. Um, So there's that. And and absolutely, you know, collaborative family law, I I remember you telling me seven years ago, I remember you saying, Noor, in the future, this is going to grow and it's going to be a great thing. And you're right. I see it happening now. But if you could just give our listeners sort of a brief explanation of what exactly collaborative family law is for those who don't know. Sure, sure. I, I, and I, I think University of Ottawa, too, if I, it, you know, now that you've mentioned it, I think a good friend of mine, Chris Arnold, taught collaborative uh collaborative law, collaborative family law at the university. Oh, that's amazing. As well. Yeah. So it, it, it's there and it's just, and, and these, these skills is active listening and things like that. I, uh, you know, I let's get away from referring to these things as soft skills and start referring to them mm-hmm, as necessary. For sure. If, if we want to be, uh, you know, adept at what we do, we need all of that, that all of those compliments. Collaborative law, uh, in a nutshell, is um, the approach is different. So right from the get-go, uh, you know, if a client approaches me and approaches one of my colleagues and they're interested in collaborative law, there is a contract that's signed right from the start. And the foundation of that contract is uh, we won't go to court. So we're all committing to a process uh, where court is taken off the table and if court becomes necessary then the lawyers uh that then any of the professionals that are involved in it are not a part of that other process Mm -hmm. so there's it it incentivizes people to stay within it there's also a lot of screening that goes on i mean obviously if somebody isn't going to you know uh, participate then obviously you can't have a collaborative process, but there, there are ways, skills that I teach people because I think it's it, oftentimes it's better if somebody comes to me and they have an interest. Um, if their partner doesn't, how can we have a conversation where maybe you can share some of your knowledge that you've learned? You know, unfortunately, lawyers still suffer from uh, you know, a lot of people choose to be self-represented, uh, and there are many reasons, but one of the reasons is, uh, and you also hear this in mediation is I don't want to go to a lawyer because it'll cost too much Mm. or the lawyer will take over. Uh, and you know, I'll, I'll lose, you know, the lawyer then does everything. And, uh, and, and so there, there are a number of reasons. Collaborative right from the start, we've all been trained. So it starts with all of us being trained. And, 
and it's lawyers and we have family professionals. We have financial professionals who do different things. We've all been trained. Uh, we've all taken uh, intimate partner violence uh, and coercive control domestic violence training so that we're, we're, we're all capable of screening and recognizing um, you know, some of the red flags or the risk factors uh, that come up. And we're all committing to a process. So we're right from the outset, we're defining the problem differently. We're helping people uh, gather the information that they need to make decisions where we want to know what it is that is causing them to think a certain way. We're asking questions differently rather than, okay, so what do you want? Oh, you want custody, not that mm -hmm. custody's, you, but you want primary parenting. You want spousal support. You want, we define the, those, it's not that we don't ask those questions. It's the information that we get, we get it differently. So rather than just getting the tip of the iceberg, we're going beneath the surface to try and understand not just what they want is one thing, but the why's behind it. And, you know, how does that impact? And asking those questions about um, that we maybe never asked before, when, when you're focused on litigation, it's more staying closer to the surface and, and then it becomes tell me all the bad about it. So we all sign a contract right from the outset that talks about all of these fundamental principles of collaborative law. And, uh, and we also, you know, in my cases, very rarely uh, would you ever not have a family professional, at least at some point in the file at the very beginning. Uh, oftentimes those family professionals, when there are children involved, uh, the family professionals stay on to help with the parenting plan. Um, and I, you know, coming back after having taken two years off from the practice of law, coming back now, uh, financial professional I'm, I'm using uh, and I probably will use in, in most of my cases. So you have a full complement okay. of people. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure it makes the process a lot more amicable and less adversarial, like you said. And I just also wanted to pull a plug for Muslim Law. You recently joined. Congratulations. Um, if Thank you, you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, if you could just tell us a little bit about your firm. Well, you know what? It, uh, I wasn't certain that I was coming back to the practice of law. Sometime in September, I, you know, because I was doing some research and I was taking some uh, continuing education I decided that I wanted to go back. I was finishing up my mediation training. So I, I, I you know, I had practiced, you know, Nora, I had practiced for, um, I think, 18 years, uh, 18, 19 years, I had practiced on my own as a sole practitioner. I missed being around people. So I had conversations with a few law firms, and then I met uh, Anna Marie Musson, a, a mutual friend of ours, said, I really think the two of you should talk. And with fit within 15 minutes, she's from Windsor. I'm from Windsor. So we had that in common. We both went to the University of Windsor for law school. But it was the philosophical, when you meet somebody who philosophically uh, shares your mm -hmm. view, it, it immediately 
jumped off the page as something special for me. And just the ideas and the energy that's created. And then I met uh, uh, Sean, uh, who's been practicing seven, eight years, uh, and Tannis, who is our, our student. And we just, you know, that shared energy and that idea that, you know what, right from the get-go. So I have this unique opportunity coming back for those that don't know, I practiced for 19 years, 20, sorry, 21 years, stepped away for two to lead a, a charity. And then I come back to the practice of law. So I'm building from scratch again. And I have the ability to do things. I do now know, I know now what I didn't know then. And I now have the opportunity to build. And for me, that's exciting because I'm going into it with a different focus. I don't, I'm not starting off taking on all of the litigation cases that I needed to, and then figuring out a way to build a collaborative practice around it. I'm just building the collaborative practice and the mediation practice. So it's when you meet individuals that share that philosophy, um, you grab onto it and you run with it. And that's exactly what I'm doing. And I think, I think we're going to do some, incredible things and my focus will still be on reforming how we do things and having those conversations those difficult conversations about uh, how are we doing things what are we doing well what are we doing wrong where is there room to improve and just the sharing of ideas um, that's how we're going to get better that's amazing i'm so glad that you've joined such an amazing firm and i'm sure you will all do great things i'm very excited to see what the future brings yeah I, so am i so am i and i uh you know it's i and i think the future is bright Absolutely. i mean I, I i'm i'm meeting a lot of you know i think of you nor and and your interest you know the fact that there, there are, I call you a young person, I don't mean it in a pejorative way, but there, there are people, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I just wanted to be a lawyer when I was in law school. I had some inclination of things that attracted me, but, you know, talking to you and talking to some of the younger people that I've talked to and having that self-awareness and that uh, identity right from the start and critically thinking about things not just because law school says here's how you analyze a case and and uh you know you write an exam thinking about our systems and questioning them not mm -hmm. saying from the outset like i did well it's not the best system but it's what we have um i'm seeing that pushback right. and, and between that between i think the can I'll, I'll call and rather than call them clients let's call them consumers mm -hmm. are becoming more savvy and they're recognizing i mean you're seeing self an increase in self-represented litigants for a reason and part of that is because they're, they're not crazy about the alternatives that are there um and, and let's let's start listening let's shed the tradition and this is the way we've always done it and start listening to what people are telling us and start formulating change because we can do some wonderful things. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, that's great. You know, some of the things that I picked up from this episode and just speaking to you, I mean, over the past almost a decade, um, you know, treating clients or, you know, children, consumers, 
with you know empathy um with a professional boundaries so sort of you have those boundaries but you're also empathetic you know you're regulating your emotions while you're dealing with the cases mm-hmm. and when it comes to just your career overall starting from law school we discussed how law school doesn't necessarily prepare us for those soft skills so it is a journey that you know you take on after law school and it's a journey of discovery and eventually if you're authentic you're genuine you you find your path just as you found your path with collaborative family law which is you know it's an alternative to the adversarial route and i'm really glad to see family law sort of heading towards this positive direction yeah and and you know the things that we you know we still refer to as alternative you know why shouldn't they be the norm mm-hmm. right that why ha, have the starting point be how can we get this family through the transition as opposed to you know how can i win my case and build my theory right and just to encapsulate you know the the crux of this episode children giving them that voice giving them that safe space giving them that almost you know power in a way um it, i believe the collaborative family law is very important in that in doing that and and you know what and moreover letting them be kids uh, a lot of there a lot of people don't know that a lot of childhoods are taken away mm-hmm. because the kids become just as embroiled they become pawns in this nasty game back and forth uh and sometimes it it doesn't end and guess what happens you know oftentimes these kids turn around at the end and say you know what i don't want to have anything to do with either one of you what you guys put me through was hell and now that i'm old enough to make that decision forget about you mm-hmm. yeah for sure you know and how awful is that it is awful and you're right it experiences that you go through as a child follow you throughout your adulthood and then as an adult it's on you to either seek therapy seek help seek some sort of assistance to work on those wounds and heal from them so what you're doing here is you're you're kind of doing the groundwork for these children trying to protect them from being affected by these adversarial sort of fights um so i certainly hope that there is an upstream benefit absolutely. To, to this i think if we do it right if we apply ourselves there can be you know a lot of kids who have been victims mm-hmm. of what their families went through can be spared in the future for sure thank you so much dave i has been an absolute pleasure having this discussion with you as usual if there was just one thing that you could leave us with one piece of advice that you could give us law students or just legal professionals in general that something that you would have want wanted someone to tell you at an earlier stage of your career Hmm. Wow. That's <laughs> it's a, a loaded question. <laughs> it, it's a very loaded question and it's tough to, to pin down just one thing, but you know what? I, I think it, one of the things that's been going through my head uh, as we've been talking in this episode is you, you do not own your client's problems. Mm. Far too often I see lawyers, I see young lawyers, I did it myself, so I'll mea culpa there, where you personalize it 
and you absorb it as if it's your own problem. Right. And stay away from that. Stay above that. Recognize that there's a problem there and there's there's law that can help us interpret. But refrain, be very, very careful with the language that you use. Learn that right from the start. Everything that you say in your position as a lawyer has an impact on that person sitting across the table from you. Mm -hmm. And so the last thing that you want is them walking away from you saying, well, my lawyer told me and goes to the, the other spouse or the other person and says, my lawyer said, we need to be mindful that our language has an impact. So let's be, be aware of that right mm -hmm. from the start. Um, refrain from diagnosing and giving that advice, that absolute advice right away when you don't even know what's been going on, because chances are there's something that hasn't been said because you haven't asked the right questions. So, you know, I, I've learned all of these skills and I've learned them through trial and error too. Right. But recognizing that in yourself right from the start, I think would be the biggest help, right? Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Um, you know, to avoid vicarious trauma, taking on someone's pain or someone's problem, keeping those boundaries, those professional boundaries. I think it's very important and it's definitely a learnable skill, like you said. It is. It is. It's, you know, sometimes it's Absolutely. tough, right? It, 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 those, those that get into family law often get into it for a reason because they're compassionate, uh, empathetic, sometimes empathic people and, and you naturally absorb mm -hmm. that, you know, but you have to realize that you're, you're dealing with problems, yep. you know, and, and don't attack the person, attack the problem and try and resolve that. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Dave, again. Um, I had a lot of fun you're and welcome. I learned a lot just recording this episode and speaking with you as usual. And I'm sure our listeners will also have a blast listening to this episode. I hope so. Thank you, Dave. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.